Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession today comes from Proverbs chapter 26, verse 2. Like a flitting sparrow, like a flying swallow, so a curse without a cause shall not alight. There are two applications from this proverb that I'd like to address here this morning. Both have to do with our words. First of all, and the proverb speaks most directly to the words which we receive, but also there's the words which are given. This passage speaks graciously to the blameless, who must bear the curse and bitterness that comes from the mouths of fools or wicked men. Again, the last part of that verse is, a curse without a cause shall not alight. Say that another way, that curses have no power to afflict someone who is innocent. When we are cursed at or spoken poorly about without cause, then those words are like the birds that fly over our heads. They dart about their business, but they do us no harm. Remember Goliath's curses to David and of God. David recognized them as folly, and in fact those curses seemed to be the motivation for him to defend God whom he served. When foolish men and evil men spew curses from their mouth, from their pen, or from their keyboard, they have no ultimate power over the innocent. Then the exhortation turns to the words which we say, which we write, which we blog, which we tweet, or we comment. Words do matter, and we must make it our lifelong mission to handle them well. We must recognize that it's too easy for us to presume that the other person or party is bad and has done evil. It's too easy to mistake the person or misunderstand the facts. It's too easy to call evil good and good evil. This seems especially true when we have or we think we have privilege over or power over someone else, whether that be parents over children, older children over their siblings, bosses over their employees, or governments over their citizens. God calls us to seek the facts and to speak the truth in love. So the message is this, love your neighbor well by using words of truth. And when you are innocent, the curses that are hurled at you without cause Know that they are fleeting like the darting sparrow. Christ certainly can identify with the curses and false accusations against him, yet he was without sin. This reminds us of our own need to confess our sins. Your will and out of the nations, that you've set us apart to be your people. We thank you that you give to us your word, your scriptures, your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Logos, uh, the word. We pray now that your spirit would be here with us. Fill us with your truth. 
fill us with knowledge of you, with understanding, with wisdom. We pray that your spirit would make the text of scripture come alive to our hearts and souls. Teach us and prepare us to do your will and your work in this week. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First, I'd like to say welcome to the, the guests that we have visiting today. It's, it's a pleasure to have, have the Wrights with us and the Evans. Um, it's, it's really a blessing to see all your faces. Um, we're in the book of James, and we're on James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. And I've mentioned this in the past, but the book of James is a very pragmatic book. It's very, uh, it has traction. It hits the ground. It's New Testament wisdom literature. And today we finally come to some very practical application in, in the book of James. So... We've been studying the first 18 verses, and, and there was some, some wisdom there. There was a lot of wisdom there, a lot of depth. Um, but it's been a big picture sort of wisdom. And our text today kind of gives us some marching orders. It hits the ground running. Our text is James 1, verses 19 through 21. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, Slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So I hope you notice the, the hortatory nature of these verses. It, it's, it's exhortation, it's commands. He's telling us, be swift to hear, be slow to speak, to wrath, lay aside wickedness, receive the word. He's, he's giving us commands, do this, do this, do this, do this. It's just staccato notes. As I just mentioned in the first 18 verses, James kind of just jumps in the deep end. He starts with a conundrum by telling us to count it all joy when we encounter various trials. And this is possible through wisdom, and it's fleshed out by pointing to faith in the ultimate goodness of God, which is where we left off last week in verses 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So God is truly good, and because God is truly good, we can trust him despite the trials that we encounter. But now, now we have commands. And the commands in our text flow out of this faith in God's great goodness. It's, uh, in essence, James is giving us the cliff notes of how do we do the command that he gave us back in verse 2, which was, how do we effectively exhibit patience under trial? What does that look like? How do you do that? And the answer is, we listen to God's word, we think before we speak, and we have a long fuse. That's what we do. We, we open our ears, we close our mouths, and we wait on God for deliverance. 
So if you recall, we concluded that in the, in the introductory sermon uh, to this, this series, we concluded that, that, that the epistle of James is written by the, uh, the Apostle James, uh, the, uh, the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee, and, and together they were called Boanerges by Jesus, which means sons of thunder. And he most likely is writing this book to the, di the, the diaspora. Well, he is writing the book to the diaspora, which is most likely Jewish Christians who were scattered by the persecution that followed the stoning of Stephen, which is told to us in Acts 6 through 8. And that would have been not long after Pentecost, and probably in the same year as the crucifixion and the resurrection in AD 30. So given the content of the book, and the situation of the writing, we can see that one of the central purposes of James was to calm things down in the church. That's his point. He says, look, you, you, you believed the gospel. You're Christians. You have this word implanted in you. But now, as soon as that happened, persecution happened. Stephen was stoned. You, you, your, your things were, were confiscated. You were chased out of town, and you've been spread throughout, uh, throughout the, the Roman world in, into various Jewish enclaves, most likely. And there, and there was this persecution that was pursuing them. And there was this anger that was arising within the church. They, they were a community that were being oppressed. And, and they had this, this tendency to react. They, they were Jewish Christians who were acting in reactionary ways or even revolutionary ways. Uh, there, was, there was an entire uh, movement among the Jews at that time called the Zealots. And they were all about achieving the kingdom of heaven here and now on the earth by revolting against the Romans. And so these zealots were—they would foment wrath with angry speech, and they and it could lead to riots and violence and even murder and killing. And James is counteracting this Jewish cultural expectation. He says, "Slow down. God is in control. He's he, he's 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 objecting to this expectation that the Messiah would have a principally physical kingdom." And with political and religious freedom that would take on worldly dimensions. To this, James says, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So then, what does? What does produce the righteousness of God? How are we to be the first fruits of God's creatures? And the answer is, Wisdom and word. It's the word of truth and its application to our lives. That's how we are the first fruits of God's creatures. James is giving us these marching orders in verse 19 to tell us, this is how you count it all joy. This is how you be Christ to the world. Verse 19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Now you'll notice in your outlines and your bulletins that I've referenced that this is both an index and an approach. It's an index and an approach. And so let me explain that for a second. 
First, let's talk about it being an approach. And this is this is the easy part, and we're gonna we're gonna explain it in a second. But but this is the easy easy part. These commands are the answer to the questions that that were just asked. How do we do righteousness? How do we make righteousness happen on the earth? We need this approach. We need this approach. This is the approach that achieves the righteousness of God. If you want practical instructions about how to count it all joy or to overcome temptation, then be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. That's the kind of Christian James is calling us to be. Now, what about this index thing? What's that about? Broadly speaking, verse 19, it can function as an outline for the body of the book of James. I, the rest of the book is largely a fleshing out of verse 19. Swift to hear has a strong connection with verse 21 through the end of chapter 2. It's talking about themes of receiving the word, about doing and not hearing only the word, about keeping the law or the word, about defining what hearing is. It's the intersection of faith and works. That, that He spends a whole chapter talking about this, chapter 2. And so we're going to be getting into this in much more depth. But that's hearing the word, being swift to hear. Slow to speak has a strong connection with, with chapter 3, where we hear strong teaching about the tongue and speaking. Let not many of you become teachers. Slow to speak. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. Slow to speak. The tongue is like a rudder or a bit that steers the ship or the horse. Do not boast and lie against the truth. What our tongues say and what our tongues do are powerful. It's, it's, a, it's a, a world of fire. It's a little fire that can kindle a forest fire. And James tells us it's set on fire by hell. So be slow to speak. That's chapter 3. Even in our scripture reading today, it was talking about how the, the, the shepherds of Israel were not leading. They weren't teaching well. Be slow to speak. And they're held to a higher accountability. Slow to wrath is fleshed out in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4 starts with, Where do wars and fights come from among you? You lust and don't have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. There's a great warning about coming destruction and judgment on wrath and an entreaty to be patient in contrast to that wrath. So verse 19 is the index to the book of James. It's telling us this is wisdom. This is patience in trials. And so now we're going to do a broad overview, and we're going to spend a little time talking about this approach that James has outlined for us. First, listening. Be swift to hear. This comes on the heels of God bringing us forth by the word of truth, and shortly before the exhortation to receive the implanted word. So God brings us forth by the word of truth, 
Then he says, be swift to hear. And then he says, receive the implanted word. So the first thing we should gather here is that what is it that we are all called to listen to? What are we supposed to hear? And the answer is the word. We're supposed to listen to Jesus. To listen to the truth. To listen to God. The God of all reality. Now this is not simplistic. God speaks to us in many ways. One of the ways he speaks to us is through the scriptures, obviously through the Bible, but he also uses other means. He speaks to us through faithfulness in prayer. He speaks to us through the preaching of the gospel, through the preaching of his word. He speaks to us through the body of his church, through his people, through community. He speaks to us through our brothers and sisters, in our homes and in our families, in each other, by the power of His Spirit. He speaks to us through our desires and our preferences. Those are gifts God gives to us. We learn about what His expectations for us are, partly based on those. He speaks to us through the opportunities that He presents to us. And our life circumstances. So God speaks to us in many ways. We need to listen. We need to listen to God. But there's a foundational aspect to hearing, though. When we hear, we have to stop making noise ourselves. We have to be quiet. We have, when you're hearing, when you're receiving, it's what you're hearing, what you're receiving is coming from outside of you. That means that you have to be open to it. You have to be receptive to it. And the exhortation from James is that we have to have this orientation, this specific orientation to hearing the word. We need to be ready to hear. We need to be anxious to hear. And this is where we have to ask ourselves some very direct questions. Are you quick to hear? Am I quick to hear? Do we hunger and yearn for God's truth and his revelation? Is that, is that what we're, we're, we're aiming for, hoping for, just longing for? Is spending time in God's word, is reading the scripture a delight to you or is it a chore, a burden? Are you hearing what he's saying? Are you, are you bringing yourself to be changed by the word? Or are you just going through the motions and moving your bookmark a little farther forward in your Bible? Is the preaching of a sermon life to your bones? Does it fill you with enjoyment and, and comfort and fear and life, strength? Or is it something you have to do? Go to church on Sunday. A, an annoyance or a frustration. Or is it nap time? I hope it's not nap time. Is there a vibrancy in your spiritual walk which causes you to see the wonder of God's infinity in everything around you? Think about that. God is ultimate and eternal and infinite. He's in control of every little detail. That's exciting. Our, our faith should be vibrant and alive. 
So are you listening? Are you paying attention? Are you hearing what God is saying to you? Because he's speaking. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that even his invisible attributes can be plainly seen from the creation of the world. God is speaking. He's, he's screaming in everybody's face. Open your ears. Listen to what he's saying. And being swift to hear is more than just being in the room when the words are said or moving your bookmark forward in your Bible. As James goes on to flesh this out in the rest of uh, the book, we're going to see that hearing, truly getting it, has necessary ramifications about how you live your life, what you do. If you hear, you will do. James, in fact, uses two different words about hearing, about listening. So in, 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 the, in the English it says, be swift to hear. In verse 19, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. And then in verse 22, he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your, yourselves. Catch this. He says, be swift to hear, not hearers only. What you don't see in the English is that those words he uses there are two different Greek words for hearing. When he says be swift to hear, that's the normal word for hearing. It's shma in, in, uh, in Hebrew, it's akuo in Greek, and it's just hear. And it does, it has connotations of, of hearing and comprehending and understanding and obeying, but it's just the common word for to hear. Hear me. Hear this. Be swift to hear. But the other word is, uh, the other word is, um, where is it at? It's akroatis. And it's a very uncommon word for hearing. In fact, it's only used four times in the New Testament. Three times in James in this context, and once in Paul. And in every time that it's used in the New Testament, it has this pejorative sense of being an auditor, hearing, but not doing, not listening, not paying attention. He's using a different word there. Hearing, but not doing. So, uh, in that same word, acroatis, it's the root word for the word for auditorium. So, uh, you know, if you go into an auditorium, everybody hears what's being said. Everybody in this room is listening to what I'm saying. But if it's connecting, then you're hearing what I'm saying. If it's going in one ear and out the other, then you're doing this hearer but not doer thing. So, you've been warned. <laughs> Swift to hear is akuo. And this is distinct from just being an ear in the seat. James is commanding us to be vigilant and active in participation with the Word. Hunger for it. Apply it. Use it. Live it. It's your food. It's your, it's your milk. It's your meat and bones. This is life to you. The Word. Next, he tells us to be slow to speak. Speaking. Slow to speak. This is an important command. Because we're not slow to speak. It's not easy for us to be slow to speak. Speaking is a natural reaction to trials. Let me poke you. You're going to say something. 
When we get pushed, we are naturally quick to communicate what that means to us. But I'm frustrated. But I'm hurt. But I have indignation. It's a trial. It's bad. It's natural for us to, to, to yell, to shout. You're not hearing me. You don't understand. That's, that's what we want to say when we get trials. This hurts. Another thing that's natural to us is pride. Not only do we need to communicate that we are hurt or that we're frustrated, but we instinctively think that we know what the problem is and what the solution is. So therefore, we feel compelled to tell everybody. We are going to dictate to everybody else what needs to happen to fix my problem. We are often quick to assume authority and start gaining support and shooting out orders as soon as we get poked. You need to do this and this and this and this. You need to stop doing that. We're good at that. And here James is telling, telling us to slow down. Think. Think first. Think before you speak. And he, he fleshes this out quite extensively in chapter 3. Teachers receive a stricter judgment. Words are fire, and they could create a forest fire. I mentioned this in the, uh, when I was talking about the index. This, we need to be slow to speak. Failing in word is easy to do, and the consequences of quick speech are destructive. And there are many proverbs about this. Fools just run off at the mouth. That's what they do. They just blah, 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 blah. They can talk all day long. You can't get a word in edgewise because they know it all better. But wisdom from the word is to keep your trap shut. Be slow to speak. And when you do speak, speak deliberately and with reservation because the Lord judges every idle word that comes out of our mouth. It's Matthew 12, verse 36. Every idle word that comes out of our mouth will be judged. So be slow to speak. Don't be judged. And third, be slow to wrath. And this one comes with a justification. Verse 20. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This kind of wrath is speaking of a deep anger, a burning, burning resentment, uh, even a, just a, a, a hatred, a, this wrath. And first, I have to say that this is not... A, a blanket prohibition of wrath. James does not say, and never be angry, or and never have wrath. James says, be slow to wrath. Have a long fuse. There is good and appropriate wrath. Jesus, Jesus made a whip to drive out the money changers from the temple. Think about that, though, for a second. 
He took the time to braid a whip. It doesn't, you can't just pop off and you won't have the whip ready yet. He was slow to wrath. He was settled in his anger before he expressed it. He knew what he was doing. He was deliberately doing it. Slow to wrath. Society exercises wrath. It's one of the, the rights that God gives to society. Executions happen. They must be deliberate. They must be intentional, and they must know what they're doing. That's why we have a right to a just trial. That's why we have a right to, uh, to, to being heard, to, to defend ourselves. But wrath is still executed. What's being prohibited here is riot, murder, the wrath of man, the, the wrath that's driven by personal indignation, by our own offense, being offended in ourselves, just because we feel hurt, without having first done the wisdom of patience in pursuing this wrath. Our God has wrath against sin, injustice, and oppression. He hates it when men hurt and abuse and steal and kill to serve their own ends and their own lusts. God hates that. He's really angry about it. We should be too. There are atrocities and horrors that should create wrath in our hearts and in our souls. Genocide, murder, rape, abortion, battery, torture... These things really happen in our world. And righteous men should be angry about it. It's not okay to be complacent about it. So when we look at the evils of ISIS and abortion and the mockery of marriage by our court system, our blood should boil. But we must not exhibit what James calls the wrath of man. Rather, we should be, do what Paul says, and that's to be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. God's in control, and God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And we must trust Him on that. We must rest in His sovereign power. And this is where we come to the tree and the fruit. There are two sources presented to us in verses 21 and 22. We've got the source of the wrath of man, and we have the source of the implanted word. And we get a negative production, and we get a positive production. So the wrath of man produces something, but it does not produce the righteousness of God. And the implanted word produces something. It does produce salvation of our souls. The wrath, wrath and righteousness. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Because the wrath of man is a seed of sin, it's one of the things that brings on the perpetration of the things that should make us angry. God says, be slow to wrath, lest you be an object of wrath. You catch that? Be slow to wrath, lest you deserve wrath be exercised on you. 
how many men who are in high rebellion against God justify their actions because of their self-righteous anger. Wicked men have some sort of logic that's driving it. And a lot of the time they're angry about something that God has done to them or in their life or some event in their past. And their anger to them justifies their behavior when their behavior is not justifiable according to God's holy standard. Because of this, instead of wrath, the first action that we should take is always repentance. Humble yourself. And then turning to the word of God, which is the source of all wisdom, we do what God's word says to do. Be swift to hear. And what God's word says to do, then, is be slow to wrath. Be patient. Trust in God. Now, the antidote to this wrath is, is a humble reception of God's word. and that's, that's, But there's a, re a prerequisite to that humble reception of God's word. There's something that has to happen first. Before you can receive God's word, you need to... Verse 21, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. There's your, there's your prerequisite. Before you can be slow to wrath, before you can be slow to speak, before you can be quick to hear, you need to be cleansed. You need to be purified. Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive the meekness, with meekness, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So in order for us to hear, we must be pure. In order to receive, we must lay aside. If we refuse to let go of sin in our lives, if we grasp on to sin in any of its forms, then we truncate or we interfere with our reception of the word. Sin blinds us. Sin stops up, stops up our ears. Sin gets in the way of our ability to live out the Word. It's in direct violation of the Word. That term filthiness is, is uh, the Greek term. It's used of dirty clothes. So he's, he's talking about the clothes of life. Um, he's saying, take off those dirty clothes. Get rid of that. The Bible elsewhere uses the metaphor of clothes. To put on the robes of righteousness, the clean robes of Jesus Christ's blood that he covers you with. That, that word is actually, a, a, the cognate of that word is a technical term, a technical medical term in Greek, speaking of dirty earwax. Yeah, gross, huh? <laughs> speaking of dirty earwax, um, in the context of being quick to hear, this means we must open the ear canals, get out the Q-tips, and streamline our reception of truth. Cast aside all wickedness. Cast aside all evil. Clean out your ears and hear what God is saying to you. Be freed up to receive salvation. And if salvation is received, and if wickedness and filthiness can be set aside, 
we learn something very important. Sin is external to us. It's not essential to our being. If God commands us to lay something aside, we must not tell a lie about what God says and say that it is impossible to lay it aside. Now this has a very strong content, contemporary exemplification. Example. In the, in, the, in the contemporary debate against homosexuality, you'll hear things like, I'm born that way. I can't help it. It's part. It's who I am. But the truth is, is that yes, we are all born sinners, but our sin is not essential to our being. Rather, God intends for us to have purity and life. To say that sin is like a zebra's stripes, which can't be changed, or like a man's skin color, which can't be changed, is to identify yourself by your sin and to deny the truth of God's word that says that Jesus redeemed you from that folly and he has identified you by his blood and your baptism. You're a Christian, you're pure, you're holy, and your sin does not belong in your identity card. It's not who you are. It's something you fight. It's something you struggle against. But it does not define your essence. Let God's word define sin and reality and our essence. If you don't do this, if you identify yourself by your sin, rather than receiving the implanted word, which can save your souls, you're packing the wax in tighter getting out the corks and shoving them in there. You're not paying attention to what God is saying. And instead of that, God tells us to set aside the uncleanness and to put on the righteousness of Jesus. Notice the contrast with the wrath of man. The word produces salvation whose fruit is righteousness. And we'll be talking a lot more about that as we get through chapter 2. So, more on that coming. In the end, salvation is a gift and it is effective for you. If we're going to humbly, if we will humbly, receive the word of truth, that word humbly, that with meekness, it says with meekness receive the word of truth. It With meekness, with gently, humbly, this is also in direct contrast to the way that the wrath of man works. The wrath of man is driven by pride and arrogance and indignation. The word comes through compliance, openness, and receptivity. If we will humbly receive the word of truth, we have this promise that that word is able to save our souls. We have the gospel of life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let us pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for this good word. We thank you that your word is fruitful for life in us. We thank you that you teach us how to count it all joy when we encounter trials. 
we pray that you will strengthen us and give us courage and boldness to do and to hear your word. May we be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Fill us with your life. Father, we now conclude as you taught us the truth. God's presence this morning. You've praised Him, you've confessed your sins, you've been forgiven, and you've heard His word proclaimed and declared from the scriptures, and you've believed on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that word is the word on salvation and life. And now I exhort you to humbly receive that word in the promise of this sacrament. Believe on Jesus. Trust in Him. Hear Him and obey Him. Be slow to speak and slow to wrath. Set aside all the filthiness and wickedness of sin and embrace the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ shed for you and His righteousness freely imputed to you. This table is for all baptized Christians under the authority of Christ and His body, the church. When you eat and drink, the bread and wine with us. You do profess that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God and that you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Christ's body broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.